Master Bowman podcast. If you're obsessed with the strategies, gear, and stories that will make you a better backcountry bow hunter, you're in the right place. We're independent, unsponsored, and unbiased, so we can cut the fluff and give you detailed advice on what really works and what doesn't. Today's episode is all about tracking, field dressing, and packing elk. Basically everything you need to do from when you release a shot until you drop it off at the butcher. All right, Josh. Better than Hey Josh, I guess. <laughs> oh, that's funny. We're gonna figure yeah. it out. You uh you got tack tomorrow, right? Tomorrow? I'm driving out tomorrow and then shooting Saturday and shooting Sunday in Utah, snow base in Utah. Amazing. Yeah, I don't think we're supposed to date podcasts, but hey, screw it. Um these are now really close to when they're going live, so it's pretty fun because what we talk about now is gonna be out to the world in a few days. Yeah, pretty awesome that we're, we're all caught up to the blog. And today's is the last one of the Hunt 2020 or Hunt Elk in 2020 series, huh? Fake news, Josh. We got one more. Oh, one more. One more. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, we got uh, we got like the recap one, which is, we'll talk about like all the, the last steps and things. And I think we can, uh, we'll come back to you guys with the full bit too, but I think we'll talk a little bit about our gear, the other ones, and then some some other stuff. So we got we got some real cool content that we got. For the first time, we'll be kind of transitioning to other mentors, right? People in the industry that have amazing insight and some stuff to talk about. So it's going to be a really exciting time for the podcast. And I think, uh, like we said last time, we're going to learn probably more from the podcast mid and post season than we thought possible. It's going to be pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm very excited. There's going to be some cool people at TAC. I'm going to see if I can get any of them to come on the show. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see if we can make that happen. Awesome, man. Cool. Well, let's, uh, let's go for it. Um, we've got a ton. I think this is one of the longest posts, like 4,000 words or something like that. I don't know if you can hear Luke. Uh, Baby Luke made an appearance. Yeah. He's kind of going for it in the background there. Uh, so what to do immediately after the shot. So we got to the point last week where you've made a shot on an elk. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, if you're able to think completely rationally, something's probably wrong with you. So it's, <laughs> it's just a crazy moment. But uh, that those few seconds right after you release an arrow are actually really, really important. Um, and there are things that five minutes later, you'll be like, oh my goodness, I wish I'd done this. Uh, so we can walk through kind of the things you should do right after you shoot. Um, mm -hmm. And the first one on my mind is shut up. <laughs> like Just there's such a big temptation to be like, yes, or scream or look at a buddy or do something. Um, the name of the game here is to stop that elk from going anywhere, right? Like that's the number one thing you're trying to do is to stop that elk from running far away. Cause the, the farther it gets, the harder and harder it gets to, to track them. Right. Right. I, I always hear, or in the videos that I see of, um, people, shooting elk i always always hear them start cow calling like crazy yep um so you we would recommend not to do that no i'd recommend to do that but i think everything else shut up don't move don't crack branches don't you know but Gosh. cow calling so cow calling is good i do i don't have anything to back this up so i i make sure to say that when i'm not convinced of something but a lot of the time they shoot an elk and it's like someone opened a pinata it's like mew 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 <laughs> and like two bugles and a three guys doing it all at once. And it's like, that seems pretty unnatural. Right. So I right. think, yeah, absolutely. Give it a cow call or two or three, but you know, what would the cow do in a situation where it, it freaked out? It would, it would bark and then it would maybe call, but it probably wouldn't mm -hmm. call that much if it was freaked out too. So 
all you're trying to do is make it sound like, no, everything's good. So I just do a calm, collected cow call. Mm-hmm. Maybe another one 10 or 20 seconds later, you know, I wouldn't just start yelling at it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that doesn't, like I said, I've you know only had a what, three or four run away after a shot now at this point. Uh, so maybe someone who's done 50, 60 elk. Well, if anyone's done that, I don't know. Um, 30, 40 elk might have a better point of view, but it doesn't hurt. Okay, so number two, uh, marking where you're standing. This is something that's I learned from chucker hunting, which is for guys that aren't familiar, upland birds that live at really gnarly high altitudes. Uh, it's amazing, really fun. Try it sometime. Uh, but it's really, really hard to track them. But always, always when you take a shot, the first thing you should do is kind of draw an X with your foot in the dirt, mm. right? Uh, so mark where you're at. And the reason for that is that everything you see is relative to where you're standing. Right. And you, how many times you've been in the woods, you walk 10 feet to the right and it looks totally different. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the times after a shot, you're going to come back to, you know, basically where you shot from. And you, if you look at it from three feet to the left or the right, it's different. And you're like, oh man, where was I standing exactly? Right. Yeah, Totally. Uh, there's other ways to do that. You can put like a, you know, pile up some sticks, do flagging tape, all that stuff. One of the best hacks I've done is usually guys have their cell phone in their pocket because you're using it for photos. So just pull it right out. I stick my finger right where the elk was. I take a picture. I stick my finger right where the elk, I last saw it. I take a picture. Ah, uh, okay. That's pretty smart. Even if you go back to the same area, you might double guess yourself and be like, hey, where did it go? Um, yeah. And the, the reason we're going through this is that like, it's so important to know where it was at so you can pick up the trail, right? Right. Uh-huh. So arrow releases, you stay quiet, maybe one or two cow calls. And then how long would you wait before you make some motion or noise drawing out that X or like taking those pictures? Uh, when it's out of sight, basically. Okay. Uh, we'll talk about like how long to wait here in a second because that's the biggest question, you know, guys have with this stuff. Uh, yeah. The only other thing I do like immediately, immediately after the shot, like you shoot and you're a cow calling, uh, I would, I probably should have put it in a different order, but you know, shoot, you're cow calling. I would knock an arrow right away, like immediately, oh, immediately. Wow. Okay. because what happens a lot of the time is, especially if they buy the cow call thing at mm-hmm. 60, 50, 80, 90 yards, whatever it is, they'll stop and turn and look and be like, what is that? Mm-hmm. Um, and the general rule of thumb is that if you have an arrow and an elk in a position that you know is going to be fatal, like you should absolutely keep shooting even if they're not great shots. Oh, right. Okay. So, I mean, even if it's like you're shooting it in the guts, you're shooting at another spot. Um, that sounds tough, but like your, your responsibility that time is to end that thing's life as fast as possible. Yeah. Everything you, every, everywhere you put an arrow is going to be beneficial. Okay. So if you can get another shot, just, Put it in there. Just instantly take it. But you have yeah. to knock an arrow super quick. Um, mm-hmm. You look up and it'll be standing there. And by the time you knock it, it's gone. Yeah. yeah. So those are kind of the two or three things to hit like immediately after. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the phone thing is really great. I've done that. I started doing that last year and it's been super helpful. Uh, yeah. Put up some super blurry photo of my finger on the block. <laughs> <laughs> Not the world's greatest photography, but it proves the point. Um, yeah. Okay. So now how long, right? And this is what. Uh, was my biggest question when I was starting out. But as always on the show, the answer to that is it depends, right? Um, so remember how we were talking about it's so important to call your arrows? Uh, oh, what where do you mean they call hit. 
like when you're practicing, you're like, Hey, that one's slightly to the right. Oh, yeah. The ability mm-hmm. to know where it goes. Like this is kind of where it starts to play out. Uh, because if you're confident that arrow hit in a really good spot, then it's going to change the amount of time you want to, you want to, uh, to change or to go after it. Right. Yeah. Right. Cause if you think it's a bad shot, then maybe you should wait extra long. Yeah. And I do something very, very different than a lot of the guys I've heard. Um, but I, again, I'm really confident in this one cause I've done it a few times and, mm-hmm. um, I know that there's just no way it would, you know, would affect someone. Right. So the first, uh, first thing I'm going to do actually after that elk runs away and every now and then you'll hear them crash. Right, which is amazing. I've had that happen once. They'll run away and you'll hear just this loud crack pop boom as it drops. Yeah. But trust me, you're not going to question if that happened. They're, it's like a, someone dropped a dumpster into the forest, right? Um, so immediately after the shot, I'm going to walk up to the spot where I shot it. Um, yeah. And a lot of guys can be like, hey, what the heck? You're not supposed to do that. But here's my rationale. One, the elk is out of visible range, mm-hmm. right? If you have to be 100% sure of that. If you're not, don't do this. But it's almost always going to run off well past where you can see. So it's not yeah. going to see you. You can be quiet enough if you're doing it right. You're, you want to do this like you're stalking too, that mm-hmm. it's not, uh, not going to hear you. But it's super, super, super important to find the tracks. And this is kind of my whole thing on, on tracking is everyone goes for the blood. I, I'm a big believer that the tracks are the thing you want to go find. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But if you go find those tracks while your memory is still fresh, you're going to have way higher odds of finding them. And then most importantly, it's going to give you the ability to go back and wait the allotted 45 minutes to four hours and not tweak out. (laughs) Right. Cause you know where it was standing when you shot it, know where it was standing. You probably will find your arrow. You will probably find the tracks. You will mark them with a piece of tape or something like that. And you're like, cool, I'm good. I'm going to go back and hang. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a big, big advantage, um, for stuff. So that's one that you might not hear other places, but again, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that I've done it a lot for those reasons. It's really helpful. Um, yeah. So, so when you walk up to the place where the elk was standing, when it got, was shot, then are you paying attention basically to just which direction the tracks went? went? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So you're going, you know, which, uh, which direction is he going? And that's going to be super, super helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so timing, like before we get into tracks versus blood and all that stuff, maybe we talk timing. So if you, you know, there's really three scenarios in my mind. One is like, you heard the elk crash, like it just dropped and it like, you can probably go right in. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Like if it's, if you know it went down, like I would probably sneak in real close and try to just shoot it if it's still alive. Oh, wow. But most of the time you hear that crash, they died on their feet within 20, 30 seconds. Oh, really? Yeah. Every elk I've oh. shot has died. Well, every, sorry, every elk but one I've shot has died within 30 seconds. Um, mm. Each time I backed out a little further and then went in, but figured out, oh, there's no way it could have lived longer than this because the way it piled up and it fell. Oh, um, so if you do hear a crash, you're pretty safe. You're pretty safe. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's kind of the only exception to this, but I'd say that's 5% of the time, 10% of the time, that's pretty low odds um, of what's going on. So that's one, two, this is probably the biggest case. I'm hoping this is the biggest case for you or most guys is if you make a good shot in the heart or lungs. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's, you're confident it's in the, 
the lung area, the heart area, if you see the arrow, you got good blood. That's, I've heard a lot of different things from folks, 20 to 45 minutes, you know, 45 minutes is safest. Uh, but you have to be pretty confident that things went well. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's, if it's hit there, it's just not going to live. Now, other scenarios, like ways to think this through. If you only tag one lung, mm-hmm. like it's going in at a very diagonal angle. Um, and it, it's kind of surprising that if it's not perfectly broadside and you shoot it in the right place, you might only get one lung mm-hmm. and that elk can live for a while. So I'm talking like it's dead broadside. You know, it is smoked. It's perfectly in the middle of the area and it went right through. Right. Mm-hmm. It sounds that, like it's like a spectrum of like the more uncertainty you have around the shot, the longer you wait. Yeah, absolutely. Got it. Yeah. And then if you're making a poor shot, that's when it gets long. Right. Um, and that in my mind is like a gut shot, liver shot, you know, that's just back from the, uh, back and low from the, uh, the lungs, kind of the vital area. You know, you aim for that. You saw it go a foot back. You're like, Oh man, not great. Or it went into the guts. Mm-hmm. I think the most important thing to know is that's going to kill the elk. Like it's not going to live. It's going to die. Um, so you absolutely have to follow up on it, but probably four to six hours like a while. Right. And if you, if you are in the, there in the evening, it's probably time to back out and go back in the next morning. If that happens. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if you, if it is in the evening, you just mark a waypoint on your GPS and then go back out. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big fan of flagging tape. Um, You don't need to buy some. I've got a roll I can give you. It's dirt cheap. It's just literally orange plastic tape. Yeah. Uh, And I'll, the roll is like four ounces. Don't take that thing in there. It's heavy. It's like a, it's stupid to carry that around. Just, we just peel off like three, four feet of it. And then you can break that up into like two or three, four inch segments and just tie it around stuff. Yeah. But it's bright red. So I'll always have something like that in my pack and my kill kit so that I can just take that and tie it to a branch right next to it. And I'll mark it on the GPS. Got it. Okay. GPS. Oh, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole, but it's a government system. They've, it's accurate down to the sub inch for the government, but they've said it's not accurate for more than nine feet for civilians. I, I believe it's okay. nine feet. And so they are yeah. officially restricted and yada, yada, yada. Long story short, if it's especially in timber, you're not going to get better accuracy than about 20 feet, eight, you know, nine times two. So, okay. So would you say flagging tape is pretty much a necessity? I think so. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a nice thing. You could, I mean, get creative. Like you forget some, or you don't have some, just take toilet paper out. Tie it around, right? If it's not raining, like you got something white. There's other ways to do it, but it's just a really nice little thing and it's dirt cheap and I throw it in with my kill kit. Yeah. My kill kit, I always put in like a Ziploc or if you've got a uh, vacuum sealer, you can throw all your stuff in there and just suck all the air out of it because it's, you leave it in the bottom of your pack, it's dead weight, right? As Mm. little room as you can do would be awesome. Yeah, true. Yeah. But yeah, you can probably get creative like, um, take a shirt tie it over something like leave an arrow in the ground like stick yeah it up or something. something like that right like it's it'll work um, but flagging tape the reason i like flagging tape we'll talk about in a bit when you kind of get to you get to step back and see a trail because that's what really helps you figure out where the elk is but we'll talk about that in a minute but okay. it, it works without it so it's not like you have to go and do that if it's too much of a pain mm-hmm. um yeah but that's uh, you know, that's it. And you're starting to see why the blood may or may not be a great thing because you know, uh, in my opinion, there's two things that happen with blood, right? One is it's going to dry up quick. 
Uh, so it's going to go from like red to kind of a dark brown or dark red within 30 minutes if it's somewhere hot and dry. Yeah. And it turns out at high altitude, September, it's hot and dry, right? Mm -hmm. So it's going to kind of go away quickly. I mean, the other thing is that depending on where you hit the elk, you're going to get different bleeding. So I've got you back to shot placement. I think we talked a little bit about the shoot them high, watch them die thing, right? Mm-hmm. where it's uh if you shoot them high it fills the lungs but there's been scenarios where you get great blood and this is not just elk this is most any ungulate or big game animal um i've shot 50 60 at this point because uh, a lot of the trips to new zealand and other places but you will see blood trails that start amazing that go to nothing you'll see blood trails that start at nothing that get good you'll see blood trails that are just a drop and it was a perfect shot you, you're going to get a really really wide range of blood trails mm. And so depending on it is, is dangerous, right? Huh. Okay. And so if you're waiting four to six hours and it's dry, now you've got a tough thing to follow up on. Yeah. Right. A lot of places I've been, like, especially when I was in Idaho, it's harder to track because it's like almost powder dirt. Mm-hmm. And so the, the blood that falls into it is almost invisible. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you basically are looking for where that thing crossed deadfall or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it's a really difficult thing to do. Um, but before we get too deep into that one, any questions too? I'm just trucking through this one because there's so much here. Yeah, it seems like a lot. So once you you pay attention to, you, you would say to pay attention to the tracks more than the blood, um, how far do they typically run? Yeah, that's a good question to, to frame this up. Um, if you make a good shot, it's not far. And I've heard this from a lot of guys, obviously I've only had an N of three or four. The... Um, they, all the ones I've shot have gone under 100 yards. Okay. Pretty much 90 yards, 60 yards. But I will say, even though they went that far, it still took 20, 25 minutes, 30 minutes to find them. And that's, oh, that's just not an ex- too bad. Yeah, but it's an extremely nerve wracking time. So you think about if there was a clear trail and someone told you to find something 90 yards away, that would take you 25 seconds. Right. Right. You just walk. It's like walking to the 100 yard target out of the range. It's just straight up. Mm-hmm. So you're. 20, 25 minutes to go that distance, you are really trying to pick things apart and find it. Yeah. Elk just don't. It's not like the East Coast where it's high humidity and green everywhere and you're using a three-inch wide broadhead on a skin, you know, thin-skinned animal and they just bleed everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, elk or it's just not the same. It's very different terrain. So that's it can be really mentally difficult to deal with it. But just know that's normal, right? Don't, okay. don't freak out. Um, yeah, for some reason, I, I always imagine like after taking a shot, just like sitting for like hours and then tracking for hours. So maybe yeah. it's not as good. bad as I expected. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, that's good. Um, I mean, if you do, a, if it's a great shot and everything goes well, you'll probably have your hands on that animal within the hour. Wow. So that's a good, uh, and if I've done, you know, I've made good shots and I've waited 10 minutes and gone. Right. So it just yeah. depends on your level of conviction really is, is my takeaway. What about uh, those, the, mm-hmm. you know, I've heard a lot of people talk about the risk of like, waiting too short and and then like yes. going in and then there's adrenaline and it gets yep. up again and the blood clots and so there's no blood at all yeah um so is it always better just to wait longer or yeah and that i should have just said that at the beginning of this but that's the whole reason for waiting mm-hmm. right is that there i mean you know when you get injured and you you don't even feel it yeah right yeah, that's because the shock yeah that's the adrenaline pumping right and so they get that right at first they might run a hundred yards. They heard the cow call. They're like, what the hell was that? When I, we had a, uh, the second year I shot the cow the first morning with, uh, with Margaret, 
uh, it like stood there, just kind of looked at us and wobbled. It was like, kavump. So Whoa. they don't, it's so sharp and so fast. I don't think they even really know what's going on if it's a good mm-hmm. shot. But the problem with that is that they can run away a hundred yards and just sit down. It's like something feels weird. I'm just going to sit here. Yeah. The adrenaline kind of goes away. They're sitting there and then, yeah, if you walk up and they look and they're like, oh my gosh, that was a human. Then you're right. The adrenaline pumps up again. They just start running. And that is the worst of all worlds. Cause the second time they're almost always going to run further because they're a hundred percent convinced it was a human, right? It's not like right. a, what if it was like, Oh, a human bumped me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is the, the absolute worst thing that can happen. And that's even if you're going in at 30 minutes, you still need to be to what you think is a dead elk that crashed. You need to just be so stealthy and so, you know, quiet. Yeah. I think I'm going to have, I'm going to, I'm guessing that I'm going to have so much adrenaline going through me after I take a shot, if I get to take a shot this uh, fall that I won't like (laughs) be able to just stay cool. So I'm I'm probably going to just wait extra. Like I probably won't be able to call the shot just because of how you're going to be so crazy. I'm going to feel at that moment. Oh yeah. I'm probably just going to be safer then I guess, and just wait a while. Yeah. That's a good call. I remember the first time I shot an elk, I, uh, I distinctly remember when I shot it, I noted it down. I dropped a pin on the GPS and that, if you drop a pin, it tells you exactly when you created it and all that stuff. And then I went back to where I dropped my pack, which was not that far away. And I can't even remember what I did in those 25 minutes. <laughs> I remember looking up at some point and seeing a, like a third eaten bar. Cause like I was incapable of even like eating or drinking. I was just so like jacked that you're, yeah, you're very affected by that. Yeah. Um, did you like take a video, take some picture? Like you don't remember at all. You just nothing. I write, did nothing write, for write 25 minutes, or... zero Whoa, minutes. Uh, I think I literally was just sitting there counting the minutes, uh, but I can't quite remember. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a gap in my memory. Wow. Um, but yeah, that was only about 20, 25 minutes uh, mm-hmm. before I started kind of coming back to senses. But yeah, it's a good, another thing I will say from experience is, that is a really good time. It's hard, hard to do, but that's a really good time to onboard a lot of water and a lot of food. Huh. You're going to be doing a pretty oh. Herculean task here that's really dirty and you don't want to touch that stuff. Right. Um, and it's really easy to get lightheaded because you don't realize that you might be picking up elk and holding up a leg for an hour and a half straight. And that's insane exercise. Yeah. Uh, so it's a really good time to try to eat and drink if you're trying to do something to keep yourself occupied. Right. I mean, it kind of helps your body calm down. When you do routine things, you're telling your body, I'm fine. I can eating and drinking is something. It's one of the first things your body does away with in a stressful situation. So you're kind of forcing it to calm down. Okay. Uh, So yeah, it's a good, good questions. Um, You know, one other thing when you walk up initially, kind of right after the shot, Mm -hmm. uh, if you do find the arrow, that's great because the arrow also gives you some kind of indicator of what the shot quality was like. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've heard this. I think we've talked about it before, but basically, you know, you really want to get a pass through, right? Because then you get two holes. Uh, the elk's going to bleed out of both, lower blood pressure, dies sooner, all that kind of stuff we talked about in the broadhead episode. Yet another reason I'm a big fan of fixed blade broadheads is, is that you often will recover that arrow. And that arrow, there's kind of three different things you're going to see on it, right? The first is like a red pink kind of blood. And it's, uh, if you're really in luck, it's like frothy or bubbly. It's got these little tiny micro bubbles. Okay. Um, I'm regretting never taking photos of that. Um, certainly will this year if I'm lucky enough to get one. Um, 
But that's that's great news, right? That's heart or lung blood. That's highly oxygenated stuff. It's you know that's that means it was probably a good shot. Okay. Right. Uh, the second is kind of this dark red or like flat red. This is kind of what it would look like if you cut yourself, but it's it's more like a brick red than like a pink. Yeah. And that's you know you shot liver. You might have hit a shoulder. You hit somewhere else where you hit body, but it's not oxygenated or highly oxygenated okay. and that's that's not good oh man and that's not horrific but that's not good and that's a you know wait wait a while that's probably liver or something like that yeah um and the final one which you know this is bad stuff but it happens is kind of green or brown and Ooh. you kind of get that smell that elk smell the poop smell that means it went mm-hmm. through the stomach or the intestines right ah uh, okay uh, really commonly the stomach and you'll hear, you actually hear a different noise. Um, when you hit them in the stomach, you hear more of like a pop noise, like a balloon. Mm-hmm. And when you hit them a little further, and this is for me shooting ones with rifles and listening, and also for me shooting one, uh, an elk in the, uh, in the stomach area and having it range forward into the vitals. So you can hear a different noise, but it's more of a pop than a thunk yeah. kind of noise. And a crack, like a sharp smack, is usually you hit bone. a bone. Yeah. So, I mean, it takes a while before you've shot enough animals with guns or archery to be able to differentiate between those two, but hey, mm-hmm. why not? So I have a question about the second type, the one that's like, you know, what we would think of it when we get hurt and we bleed, Yeah, um, that flat brick red, does yeah. that smell like gut-like and like poop-like or does that, does that, would that smell the same as like the pink foamy stuff? Yeah, it would probably smell the same as the pink. It won't really okay. you know, have an irony smell. Okay. But, um, the one of the limitations, the biggest limitation about blood on the arrow, and this is yet another reason blood is a tough one, is that it's where the arrow comes out. That's what stays on the arrow, right? Oh, yeah, that's true. If you go in at the guts and then it goes through the vitals, that blood will wash off all the gut kind of stuff. Oh, right. And vice versa, it goes in, in through a lung and then it comes out the guts, you're going to get green. Because there was one time I shot an elk and it went, I dissected it to figure out, but it went through both lungs and then it went... Uh, I clipped the back lobe of the second one, then went through the guts and came out. And when I pulled that arrow, it's 100% green and smelled like poop. I was like, oh, oh man, wow. That shot. But I was like, I swear I saw it go in right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's wherever it comes out, so it's just something else to know, right? Like you might pull an arrow and be like, ooh, this is not good. Or vice versa, you might be like, this is great. And neither is true, right? Wow. Yeah. Wow. This is, I'm just I'm picturing like Sherlock Holmes-esque like vibes, just <laughs> yeah. like being a detective and like, you know, it was broadside or it's quartering away. Yeah, so it must've gone. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. No, but I mean, it's, it's part of the game. And like we talked about in the other episode, my, the shot last year, like that's stuff that runs through my head. Cause I remember distinctly, you know, the, the pot where my arrow entered was cause it was standing between it was only that three to four inch, six inch gap, whatever it was right between those two trees. I could not really tell exactly where on its body it was, but I knew, Hey, it's midway or forward. And I knew that it was quartering away. So it's like, Oh, if an arrow enters there, it's going to come out into the opposite shoulder or right behind it. Like that's going to be a fatal shot. So it's stuff that you really need to pay attention to even during the shot. So it all just kind of adds up. Yeah. And it'll yeah. change how you shoot elk later on when you watch this process and you learn about it and you're like, Oh, I really need to make that happen or not. Right. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so that's definitely, you just definitely something to look at. Um, uh, no matter what race color creed you are, you have white palms. 
<laughs> so that is a great, great opportunity. The arrows themselves are black, you know, the carbon. And then a lot of the times your fletchings are red or green or some color that just kind of offsets color. Yeah. It's almost always, I just take my hand and wipe it down it and oh. look at it on my fingers or the, uh, or the palm, you know, and then, and then don't clean your arrow. A lot of guys will like take it and then clean it off and stick it in their quiver. It's like, trust me an hour later, you might be like, did I really see that? And look at it again. Mm-hmm. You know? I still have the arrow from last year and it's covered in blood actually. Wow. It's a pretty um, cool, like, like moment, memento. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. hang. I don't think I can, you know, preserve all my bull antlers over time. I'm not going to have room for that. I hope. Right. I'm, mm-hmm. I don't want to be cocky here, but I'm saying I've got like three or four already. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with these things. Um, <laughs> but I'm definitely going to take the arrows and uh, put them like kind of have a cool thing where it's like an arrow each. And it'd be a fun way to track the progression. Cause my first one was that it, you know, felt relatively light air, arrow with an expandable like 420 grains the next one was like a fixed blade you know 470 and then the next one's like a 495 and then the next one's a 550 you know it's kind of cool to see the like <laughs> the progression there yeah that is really cool does the color of the blood change over time i would imagine that pink foaminess would eventually get darker or... yep and that's another reason i'm a big advocate for going right up there oh, right yeah. away right mm-hmm. um all this stuff it just disappears yeah uh, so going up right away but as quietly as you can yeah and when you're i, I should have said this right away but make sure when you're flagging when you go up there you you're going to look at the tracks and you're going to mark the tracks or the blood like really what you're looking for is the exact spot it was standing so you want to be like that is the track of my elk yeah right because there's going to be a ton of elk tracks around it's pretty rare there's just one elk and if there is one elk usually it's on a trail that's well used and so the number one reason you're walking up there is to try to figure out exactly which track was your elk yeah and be 100 percent convinced of it tie your little thing to it and so yeah how do you it's, figure it's, out which track is yours? I guess the freshest one. And maybe like, if you, I would imagine when it's running that it kicks up a lot of dirt and like, it looks like it violently ran out of there. Yeah. But is there other ways? Yeah, there's definitely other ways that, you know, I think in that moment, and that's why you know, for the final time, hopefully that that's why I'm such a big fan of moving up right away. If the elk's out mm-hmm. of sight is that you will be able at that point, you'll be fresh enough. You'll be like, Oh, it was standing like right to the left of that little mini tree or that fern. It, Right. So you're going to, you're going to pinpoint where it was standing within, you know, call it like a foot or two, right. Versus yeah. 30 minutes later, you're going to be lucky if you call it within five, 10 feet. Right. Um, so that's your number one weapon. You, after that, you're looking for, hopefully you've already figured out exactly what its tracks look like. Cause elk are unique, right? Like bull tracks, cow tracks, very different. Even bull tracks, you know, I've seen large bodied bulls with with hooves that look like a medium sized bull. I've seen mm-hmm. small raghorns that have hooves that are pretty big. Mm-hmm. Generally it's, it's pretty close, but, um, they're unique. I like everything. Um, so yeah, you, but you also nailed it. I mean, just intuitively, right. It's, they're going to be super fresh. So you can go back to that podcast and episode. We talked about how like it blowing on them to figure out the age, looking at the sharpness of the edges, the stuff in the <laughs> middle of them that's been crushed, all that good stuff. Right. Um, and then, yeah, they're going to have skids or kind of like, cause the elk's running, right? Yeah. Yeah. Another really important thing to know is that they're going to be four to six feet plus apart. And they're gonna be oh. That elk is now moving. So it's really, really easy to get off trail when you're tracking the elk because you're looking for normal elk distance, which is only a foot or two or three, right? 
mm-hmm. not that far, uh, depending on how fast they're moving. And so you're going to have to jump a lot of other tracks to catch yours, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So they're going to be wider, yeah, just farther apart. And are you flagging the whole way? Yeah, and so I'll typically flag you know, one of two situations. When I've got like 10 yards-ish, 5 or 10 yards-ish, or if I can't find any more signs. There's a lot of times in this you'll get to a point you're like, I just can't find anything else. And you go 5 or 10 feet ahead, you can't find anything. But okay, I'll go back to the last place I found it and flag it. And then I'll keep moving forward and then, oh, I'll find it again. Cool, right? And so what I'm trying to do is build like a little trail. Um, and the reason I'm tying that that trail is that I have a pretty strong belief that elk, they, or any, any big game animal, really, like if it's a good shot, this only applies to good shots where it's going to die pretty quick and that elk is moving fast, is running when you saw it, it's almost always going to go in a straight line, right? Yeah, I remember you telling me this. Yeah, it's not yeah. going to out of franticness won't be like zigzagging just trying yeah. to get out of there as fast as possible right yeah because it it was mortally wounded it felt the pain it is as far and fast as possible straight away mm-hmm. and it's just going to drop during that that's the majority of the time there's a lot of like so many guys in a lot of sites i've read have said oh they won't go uphill um they won't go through thick brush there's because like, they're wounded and like i think there is some truth to that but i think that's only if they've got the time to think that right so if they're if it's gut shot and it's got like a mile to go yeah it might not but i mean i've shot the one that i hit the brisket on mm-hmm. and i should have put a photo of that that thing probably lost two or three gallons of blood wow it was unbelievable so i was 100 percent convinced it was gonna die and it was in the snow so it was a perfect situation where i could track it forever um but that thing went straight up the hill oh wow and that's not, I mean, I guess I'm kind of proving the rule, right? Because that thing didn't die and I was hundred percent sure it was okay. I saw it walking around the next day, mm-hmm. but that's a very, very injured elk and it went straight up a hill. And I've seen yeah. that a lot with guns too, where things that just were dead on their feet went straight up a hill. I don't really buy into that or they go to waters and one guys say too, I don't, I don't think they're thinking that rationally in their head. Now, I think that's more true and I've seen that pan out if it's a bad shot and they're wounded right okay you've got time to think yeah and yeah then like if you're tracking them for a half a mile uh yeah you can you can think about that stuff right um, but yeah that's why i'm flagging every few feet because after a while what you'll notice is like you've got a line right mm-hmm. or even better than a line you've got a game trail that it's dropped onto that's yeah. consistent or there's something you're going to pick up a trend um, and the only way to do that is to look back at these like little oranges pieces because you can't you can kind of remember where the sign was but to see the exact spot in 10 different locations your brain's just not going to be able to do that yeah especially out in the woods and like with your state of mind i feel like i'm going to bring an extra flagging tape just in case and just really get it defined oh yeah yeah i can just i mean i can unravel like three or four yards of it for you which is more than oh, you'd ever thanks. need that's like a fourth of a ounce or something stupid <laughs> so cool um you can also i tend to bring We'll talk kill kit here in a minute. Um, I didn't really include that in here. Probably should have, but I guess it's in the packing list. But you can, if you have latex gloves too, mm-hmm. um, I tend to bring a few pairs of those and you can just chop those up. You know, they're like blue or purple usually. So that's, that works too. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So there's, there's options. Yeah. Uh, we're getting toilet paper. <laughs> Mountain money. <laughs> you know why they call it that, right? Mountain money? No, I don't know. Why. Oh, because it's so rare to find out there. Yeah, yeah, you would pay any amount of money to have toilet paper if you run out. <laughs> so, yeah, you'd bring a lot of toilet paper. Um, 
anyway, what were we talking about? <laughs> uh, flagging. Flagging. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's, it's super good to, to flag. Um, definitely go back and pull that stuff, by the way. Like, don't leave that out there. You know, that yeah. plastic doesn't degrade. Uh, the other thing that's super important with the tracking, and we already went wide went why tracking versus blood and like you're picking up on my bias here which is like i'm worried about the tracks because mm-hmm. uh, that's just to recap there's two reasons right one every animal always leaves tracks they always leave tracks like unless they fly which i haven't seen an elk fly yet they got to leave tracks right um, and it's much more dependable um, and then the other one is it's directional right if you find a track you know which way it's going yeah. Find blood. You have no which. You have, it could have gone any which way. You just found blood, right? Uh, there are some things you can tell with blood if it's spurting out to the side of the tracks, kind of where the shot is. Too. Yeah. Just a little aside. So if you're um, if you're getting good spray, like it's going far from where the tracks are, that's a pretty good sign that you've hit harder lungs too, because there's arterial pressure there. Yeah. Um, you know, arteries is they're going away from the heart, right? They've got the pressure of the heart squeezing them. Um, and then veins are going back to the heart and they only the, the pressure of the muscles contracting is what moves the, or the residual pressure from the arteries, which is very, very, very little, um, is what moves the blood back to the heart. So generally, the closer you shoot to the, ar- the heart, the more arteries there are, the more spray you're going to get. Okay. So if you see a lot of spray, it's a good thing. Yeah. And so when I'm talking spray, I'm not talking like a foot or two to the right of the thing. I'm talking like three, four, five feet or, oh, wow. or, uh, you know, bushes the same level as the hole, oh. right? That sort of thing. Um, another one you might notice is blood running down, uh, the leg or it's in the track. That's a bad sign, right? Okay. So that means you made a shot that was on a, like hit a leg or went through a leg and it's kind of trickling out, oh. right? So that's a sign of a bad shot. I'm trying to think off the top of my head of other, other blood signs. Um, I think that's it for now. I'll see if I can remember later on. But uh, so my other tip is when you're doing this tracking is make sure you stay off to the side. So you don't ruin it? Yes. And that's not, that's not just your elk. That's any elk print you see. Because very often it's super easy, especially with the prints being four to eight feet apart or whatever, Mm -hmm. you'll pick up another track without knowing it and you'll be following that and you'll think it's your elk. Right. And then you you don't want to mess up any of the tracks. It veers off to the right and it's, once it gets off to the right, it's all alone. And all of a sudden you're like, there's only like a foot between these tracks and it doesn't look quite like the, oh wait, crap. And if you walked through other tracks that were your elk, now you're hosed. Yeah. Yeah. So be really careful about that and just try to stay away from tracks and step over stuff until the second you see the elk, don't destroy anything. Nothing. Okay. Um, that's a, that's a really important one. Yeah. Um, and it's so like that's detective. Yeah. Keep the evidence intact. Keep it intact. Right. Like it's easy. And we're like, I'm going to step back and I'm, I'm being like super maniacal about this. That's part of my personality, right? Like <laughs> a little overly intense, a little detail focused. I know it, but this one in my mind, like you owe it to the animal, right? Mm-hmm. Like so just to overrate this moment is almost impossible. Like something gave its life so that you could build yours. Yeah. Right. Like it died so that you could live. That's a pretty, that's like the fundamental case of humanity, it's pretty amazing that that happened, right? And I think there's not 
any level I wouldn't go to to make sure I'm going to do the best possible job I could do here. And so, yeah, I'm a little anal on this one, but of all the things I want to be anal on, this is a good one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of it for like following the tracks. I mean, there might come a point where you just can't find anything else. You're like, I'm, I've run out. I've went 20, 30 feet ahead. I'm just out of luck. My general advice at that point in time is like, stop, just like go sit down, take five or 10 minutes. you mark the last place, obviously eat some food, drink some water. If the elk's dead, it's not going anywhere. If the elk's not dead, you're not going to want to bump it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's okay. Come back with fresh eyes. It's amazing how many times I do that. Um, it, it just like you find something right. Uh, this is something I noticed when I was tracking elk with Margaret is that when you have two sets of eyes, you pick up on stuff so much better is it, as a human, you just like focus on one thing and you can't really step back. So if you go step back, you kind of artificially do that mm-hmm. and it really, really helps to track. And so take a break. That's my number one piece of advice. Go back and look, still can't find sign. Now it's time to start going into like alternate strategies. And your number one in my brain is if you know, it's a good shot or only if it's a good shot. Yeah. Follow that line. So just, walk out, you know, 50 yards straight away at that line, stop every 10 yards and look 360 to mm-hmm. see if you see anything. Um, elk blend in. It's pretty funny. Like I've, I've walked within 10 feet of one. I walked within three feet of a black tail before I almost stepped over it. And then when I was walking back down, I was like, Oh, there it is. Uh, so do that quick line. If that doesn't work. Go back to the last spot. Then I'll generally do the spiral Right, I'll kind of work out from that last bit and go around and around and around with ever increasing circles to try to find oh, okay. stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no hard rules here, but I'll do that 30 ish yards because then I'm, all I'm trying to do is still find tracks. Then if I haven't done that at that point, I'm like, Hey, there's, I'm not going to find sign. So I've done, you know, I've done the line, I've done the spiral. Now I'm going to do what's called grid searching. And grid searching is literally like, it sounds like you just lay down a bunch of lines and you walk the line. Yeah. So you're like, okay, I'm going to start 50 yards up the hill, 50 yards that way. And I'm going to walk, you know, hundred yards back this way, go down three yards, walk hundred yards down three yards. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So you're just trying to like go through a big square foot area with a fine tooth comb and like really make sure you're not missing it. Yeah, exactly. And the other okay. thing about that, I mean, remember when we're talking about finding elk, you got that smell. Mm-hmm. And trust me, these things, they all smell, they smell pretty potent, especially bulls in September. So another thing you're doing there is you're hopefully, if it is in that area, you're getting downwind of it, right? Yeah. And you'll get a good whiff. So every time you oh. stop, make sure to give it a good, you know, breathe in through the nose kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then you can head in the direction the wind is blowing or the opposite direction the wind is blowing. Yeah. Anytime you ever get a whiff, whiff of elk, you know, Mr. Uh, Mr. Wind checker over here and just pull it out real quick. Mm-hmm. Just wind check. And then, then you know Go where the whiff way. came from, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So Man, have you ever had to do the grid or the spiral? That must feel so nerve wracking. Yeah. It's really dangerous. Um, yeah, I had, I had to do that for axis deer in Hawaii once, but fortunately never had to do that with a, with a mainland animal. Um, I did that once in Hawaii and then we did once in New Zealand mm-hmm. and that, like all these things, like I've done it the wrong way. And that's why I can speak pretty convincingly to it. We, I shot an axis deer uh, with a bow and it's, it's really difficult to do that. They're super, 
super amazing animals, but we'll talk about that later. Um, hit him and it went in one lung, came out the other side, but it had gut stuff all over it. Right. Mm -hmm. And while I was looking at the arrow, this is right when Margaret was pretty new to archery. Um, I was pretty convinced he's going to go down quick because I thought I tagged both lungs. Yeah. He ended up going down quick, but uh, Margaret walked past me and I didn't notice it mm -hmm. and kind of ran up and he was bedded like 20 yards past me. Oh, wow. Ran up and bumped him. Oh, no. To be fair, I'm not trying to blame this on her. I would have done the same thing. Mm -hmm. I probably would have thought he was dead. Uh, but he jumped up and ran. Uh, and we didn't find him until the meat had spoiled. Oh, so that was a yeah, pretty heartbreaking moment uh, after how hard it is to shoot one of those things with the bow. Mm -hmm. uh, it was pretty rough to have that happen. I grid searched till like 11 PM that night or something. Wow. Yeah. And he'd, I mean, he'd done what he should have done, which is ran way up onto a hill over a road and then got in this giant depression that a tree had carved out. So there was probably no way I was ever going to find him because they don't really wow. smell like elk too, but yeah, I've been there. It's not fun. Yeah. Oh, that must feel terrible. Yeah. It's really, it's really tough, but just, you know, stay calm with elk cause they're, they're huge. They stink. Uh, yeah, they're capable. They're incredibly strong animals. They're capable of going a long way, but they also leave a lot of signs. So it's, you know, an elk is going to be one of the easier tracking jobs if you are careful. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's kind of, that's the progression. Hopefully you don't get into the last bit of that, but you know, be prepared, right? Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the whole spectrum of what could happen. Yeah, yeah. So now you've got you've got the elk on the ground. Now you can really go nuts, right? You can start <laughs> screaming. But yeah. I would say wait just a hair, just a hair. Because when you first see the elk, you don't really know if it's dead yet. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, I've heard this from lots of old wise hunters because they've all had the same experience where you know, they've had a lot of stone dead animals. They got cocky, they went running in, and then an animal jumped up. Uh, deer and elk can be really really dangerous in close quarters, especially bucks or bulls with uh, sharp antlers. Oh yeah, I'm I know, sure. I know a person who's been gored by, by one going in um, and had to like wrestle it down. This luckily it was a little black oh, tail, 150 pounds, but like if that's an elk, you could die. Right. Oh yeah. That's, that's scary. Yeah. So always you know, the general rule of thumb is always approach things um, from uphill or side hill. Because if they're weak and they're kind of in their last legs, they can't really stand up and run uphill at you. But it's really easy for them to stand up and just kind of fall into you going downhill. Yeah. Right. Okay. So come from the uphill or side hill side, you get within five or 10, 15 feet or whatever it is. And it's pretty easy to look at their, um, at their chest and see if they're breathing. Okay. Right. And at this point, definitely, you know, I'm assuming you still have that arrow knocked from when you, you did it. Yeah. Uh, but always, always have one knocked when you're following up and like not only knocked, but like ready to clip your release on. Yeah. Uh, and I've, there was a video on YouTube. I wish I'd saved the link because I've watched too many now to go find it. But the guys, it really upset me actually. They made a really poor shot and uh, they got up to the elk and they could tell it was alive and they were all high-fiving. I'm like, shoot it. Um, but they were just being dumb and the thing jumped up and almost got a guy and ran off. Uh, I oh kind of was like, yeah, you deserve that for letting yeah. it suffer. But I've, like, if it's that common that you see it on YouTube videos, it happens. Okay. Um, so anyway, at that point, just look for it, breathe in. If it's breathing, yeah, shoot it. Just mm -hmm. keep shooting it until it's done. Just And just shoot it anywhere pretty much? Or as, as good of a shot as you can, I guess? As good of a shot as you can. You're right yeah. in the heart and the lungs and the, the stuff. So shoot it. 
keep shooting it. Don't stop shooting it. Don't go up and try to cut its throat or do something like that. Cause again, it's dangerous for you. Yeah. Have you ever had to put more than one arrow in an elk so far or, or any animal? No archery. I've had really good luck. I think I'm so picky about shot placement that it stays clean rifle. Um, I've had one or two animals I've walked up to that were alive, but, uh, that's a pretty easy one to rectify. Just shoot it. Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't, a lot of guys are like, Oh, don't waste the meat or ruin it. And I'm like, I don't, I don't care. Like I care about the meat obviously, but like, I care much more about the animal suffering. Right. And it's like, that's the, that's what you got to deal with quick. Yeah. Um, so I've done that before. Not, not pleasant, but it's a part of the game. Okay. But I mean, it's a heck of a lot more pleasant than living your life in a cage. So, um, yeah, so that's part of the, part of the gig when, and then I'd say after that, like walk up and touch it on the eyeball with the point of the arrow, but arrow or, you know, give it a kick or a jab or something where it's, if it's in any way alive, it's going to react. Yeah. Um, and then you're like, Hey, this thing's done. Mm-hmm. Right. And then now it's time to celebrate. Right. Yeah. So it's dead. It's done. You can take a breather. Yep. And I always, I mean, this is maybe just me. Um, but I always like, I've always had kind of a visceral reaction to like these grip and grin photos of guys like holding up a dead animal with his tongue hanging out and its eyes open. And uh, I mean, I understand you're not celebrating the death of the animal. You're celebrating the the accomplishment of it. But mm-hmm. I don't know for me personally, like this isn't obviously advice you need to follow, but I just like to spend a minute with the animal um, just to be like, Hey, thanks. Yeah. You know, um, special moment. I think I, I like to close its eyes. I like to, put the tongue back in its mouth. I like to, you know, clean up blood. If it's all over there, I'm going to take a photo cause I don't want the, the world to see that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just kind of like to, to respect it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it must be a heavy moment for, you know, for the animal and yeah, just the whole journey and everything. And like you said, for it to give up its life just so you can live, that's, I think that's something worthy of a few moments of silence. And like you said, respecting it. Uh, actually when I did my hunter safety course, the guy was, I mean, this is in California, but the guy was like really strict about like, Hey, no blood in the pictures, mm-hmm. like make sure it's as like clean, like respectable as possible. Cause you know, people see that who don't understand hunting and then they go vote. So like, you just want to pay attention to what kind of picture you're, you're given. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of guys getting real big arguments with me about this one. Um, and it's emotional. Right. And they're like, Oh man, like, screw those guys. They don't, you know, they can deal with blood. They're not used to the realities of life and like hunting is hunting and like things die. And like, yes, 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 yes. But hunting isn't a right. Like you said, it's something that can easily be voted out. It's something people could take away. Um, and it's something that is completely out of hunter's control. And so I think that I'm hundred percent in the camp of, yeah, minimize the minimize the negative impact someone someone that sees that just doesn't have the context like if i'm sitting there in person i can walk them through why that's not a big deal how that's normal whatever but the internet has done away with that right five million people could see my photo and i can't talk to more than 10 yeah um and that's that's helping preserve the future of hunting in my mind is that you're you're doing that sort of stuff so i think being cautious about that is really important and yeah helps preserve the sport helps people that don't understand hunting you know just get a little more context on it so yeah it's interesting aside it's a heavy moment and i think to be even more candid like that goes away over time 
right? Like that, I felt that pretty, yeah, I felt that pretty intense the first few times I killed big game animals and it's, it kind of slowly leaves. And I don't, I hope it never totally leaves. Um, I think they'll always have, have it there, but over time, it's like anything in life, you do it enough, you get desensitized to it. Yeah, totally. Um, and so, yeah, I understand guys that have been hunting 30 years. They're like very desensitized to it. And they're like, why is someone judging what I do? Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, still just, just a little thought there anyway. Well, worthwhile diversion there. Um, other tips now that you kind of found the animal, uh, I buy these little cheap, uh, phone attachments for my tripod on Amazon for like three to five bucks, two bucks, dirt cheap. That thing is worth its weight in gold. Uh, Cause if you're solo, you're going to want a photo of yourself with it. Likely mm-hmm. if people again have differing opinions on that, but you're probably going to want it. And even if you're with a buddy, like it's really cool to have you both in the shot. Yeah. So that one little like two or $3 purchase can make the difference. If people aren't carrying a tripod with them, you can buy these like little flexi wrap tri like mini tripod things. Mm -hmm. You've seen those, right? The ones like go on your desktop. Yeah. Yeah. And they weigh like an ounce if that, and you can, you can get that and put the attachment on it. So I think both are worth the money and the almost no weight to carry just because the photos are going to help you remember it forever. And it's kind of a cool, cool moment. Yeah. All the memories. Yeah. Cause you got to get all the photos now cause you're going to start butchering. Right. Um, yeah. So then after all the, you know, thanking the animal, the respect, the, the sentimentalness, all, all the photo taking, mm-hmm. then do you go straight into butchering or are you supposed to wait a little bit or no, now the fear. Cause you've got a hell of a, <laughs> hell of a task. Out of you. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, uh, the first elk I shot was the year after I did the Ironman and I was, people were like, what was the hardest thing you've done in your life? I'm like, Hmm, well, <laughs> they're both pretty close. Um, oh, wow. in really? very different ways. Cause it's, I mean, it's, if you're solo, I could take four or five hours to do that. And then the whole What's night, is, the whole night I stayed up and you heard that whole crazy story. It was just, nuts. yeah. yeah. Um, so it's definitely a, it's a big deal. Um, one other thing I'll say is it is good to mark the spot. It went down. Mm-hmm. Um, cause then later on you can come back and say like, what's the difference between where I shot and where I, it dropped. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. I don't have to remember that. I can go find that data and look it up. Yeah, like, totally. Over 20 years, I'm going to hopefully have pretty cool numbers to figure out, but even more, like I've done this with everything, everything, like I'm doing this with regular life, not just hunting now, but like taking a video and talking about your experience in the moment is really cool. It's really awesome because it helps you remember things you wouldn't have remembered. It gives you a lot of context and it's something you can reference later. So I would, I did this last year and I'm really happy about it. I walked back to where I took the shot. I talked through the shot, my decisions. I went to where I found it. I videoed the tracks that I found and that sort of thing. I walked the whole track and talked through it to myself, showed myself, hey, this is where I got lost. This is what happened. And then I walked up to where the elk was and talked about how I found it. Wow, that'd be really cool to, to do like a last year hunt breakdown, like maybe before season sometime as an episode and like listen to that audio and then like reflect about it. Yeah. And talk through that. But that's, uh, as far as like your own learning and the ability to revisit that in November, December, when you've got elk blues. Yeah. Um, and you're like, I just want to learn from my, my one experience. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like maximizing your learning, right? That's a really cool thing to do. Yeah. Uh, so just a nice little tip for guys that are I even been doing it for years, but just a, a cool thing to do. So yeah, you got it down back to your, back to your point. Didn't want to miss those. Um, you've got it down. Uh, let me, let me talk through like some, some little tips. This, if you fe- haven't figured it out yet, like 
this whole thing is basically just tips, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of this stuff is well known. Some I can walk you through the gutless method, but there's also just great videos out there. Yeah. Um, to do it. Uh, so maybe we talk, we'll talk the method, then I'll talk tips for doing it. So my way of doing the gutless method, I was actually surprised because I, I looked this up, did a, did more research on it before I wrote the article. And there are like five or six different approaches to doing the gutless method. So I'll walk you through mine and I'll tell you why and talk about what other guys do. Um, I will always cut. Well, first, before you start cutting, if you want to cape this thing out, you know, like you want a shoulder mount on the wall, mm -hmm. completely different way of caping it. And you have to do some very, very specific things. Uh, um, I'm not going to cover that here, but that's just an FYI to guys Like you have to go into the backcountry knowing hundred percent how to cape it out. Um, and do that perfectly and cut in the right areas. It's going to change the entire way you dress the elk. So just a red flag. I don't think you're going to do that, right? No, I think I'm just going to keep the, uh, the skull and the skull, do it yeah. the Euro mount. Yeah, so you're probably fine, but... If I'm lucky. <laughs> yeah, so that aside, you know what I'll do is the elk is almost always lying on its side, if not kind of get it on its side. Um, and I start with a cut, like kind of right where your sternum is, you know, that little breastbone there? Yes, yeah. Um, I start with that, like basically between the two front legs and I run that all the way back to between the back legs. Mm -hmm. And then I run a cut up the inside of the front leg. Okay. And basically in the inside of the back leg. And all I'm doing is then going around both of those and I'm peeling all that skin back up towards the top of the back. Yeah. Right. And I'm throwing it over the top of the elk. Okay. And that's a few reasons. One, I'm doing that all really quick because the number one thing you're trying to do now is cool the elk down. Oh, okay. You got to cool it down as fast as possible. So if you do that, cools it off. I mean, you might have a situation where there's a ton of flies, but even then, like, you can kind of keep them off and it's not not a big deal because it's not raw meat. It's just the, the subskin. Yeah. Um, so peeling that off and setting it over the top. The other reason I'm doing that is that when you cut the quarters off, you got to have somewhere to set them instantly, right? Yeah. Um, so with the meat, uh, there's there's a few things about meat. One, it's really thick. So it insulates itself. Right. And so you've got, this is much, much more true than with a deer. Cause it's, you know, it's uh, we're back to pi R squared circles, math, scary. Right. <laughs> but an extra two or three inches of thickness means it's going to insulate, you know, five or 10 times longer than something that's two or three inches smaller. Cause it's got way, way less surface area. Yeah. The, or not, yeah or sorry. Not surface volume, area, right? area, volume. Yeah. Yeah. So elk quarters can go bone sour, right? They can get rotten around the bone if oh. they keep the heat in there. Yeah. Um, so when you pull them off, what I like to do is leave them open to the air, not, not stuff them in the bags. The bags are really breathable, but mm -hmm. it's going to cool down even faster. And the bags kind of stop them from getting this crust, right? And so you've dressed big game animals before, fortunately, but you know that kind of uh, membrane-y stuff on the outside? Yeah. What that does is when it's exposed to the air, it'll, it'll get to the point it's almost dry. Mm -hmm. And that's really great stuff because what that does is it seals all the other moisture in there and it doesn't stick to the game bag. Oh, okay. Versus, so, you, yeah, keep going. You want it to dry out, but then um, what about flies, mosquitoes, bugs? Do you want to keep like swatting them away or do you just kind of like, oh, whatever, like the outside's going to crust anyway? Yeah, and that's 100% a moment-by-moment moment call. So there's flies okay. all over the place and there there will be if it's early season. Um, yeah, you just, you got to put it in the game bag quick. So okay. like that is what it is. Um, don't, whatever you do, don't set it like fully on the ground with like one side touching the ground. Mm because that will uh, trap heat on that side. Yeah. 
right? You want to like balance it on two branches off the ground or hang it off the ground so that the air's all, all around it, right? Fastest okay. heat transfer possible. Gotcha. Like leaning on a tree or something like that. Something like that. And so that's why I like to flip the skin over the top because the vast majority of the time that gives you a surface to set those quarters on. Yeah. Especially if you're solo, cause they're stinking heavy, man. Like a, <laughs> the rear quarter on an elk could be over a hundred pounds. If it's a big one, it's crazy. It's a real big one, right? I've seen, yeah. they shot an elk in the area I was in last year that a five ten guy was holding it and it was on the ground. I mean, it was That's a monster insane. quarter. So if you've got that clean surface, it's great. I'd also say bring a trash bag or a Tyvek or um, like an ultralight tarp or something because it's more mm -hmm. area for you to set it down just be ultra careful with that stuff not to lay it on it because again plastic doesn't breathe yeah um so but it, usually if you flip the skin over i can put it on the skin and then lean it against the branch right right uh, and that's a really good way to do it so i'll take the front off first the front quarter is super easy to do you just start cutting from the bottom mm -hmm. um, there's no joint there so you just it comes off real clean yeah, so it's like almost like cutting through the armpit, right? Yeah, just, one at a time, and then kind of like pulling the front arm out and just continuing to cut, cut, cut. And it should just the whole thing should just come off, right? Yeah, and we'll let's we'll kind of graze over this because it's hard okay. to describe. Too, um, yeah, it's really hard to describe. There. There's videos that do it, but yeah, we we can hit it quick. But yeah, so I'll pull that off, and then I'll take off the uh, the knuckle, right, like the knee joint. And you know how to do that, right? You can do that with a knife. You don't need a saw. Yeah. yeah. And that's my whole other point on this stuff is you do not need anything but a single knife. Mm -hmm. uh, guys have a hard time believing that their first time doing it. But yeah, you can, you can cut that off with a, with a knife. A piece of advice on that though is I generally would wait to do all four quarters at once with that. Mm -hmm. You can also just leave that sticking out of the game bag because whenever you get a knife to a bone, it's going to dull way faster than if it was knife to meat. Right. Got it. So I generally save any of the bone stuff I'm doing till the end. Um, yeah. Especially if you're not sharpening your knife, which is possible with some of these really nice S30, S35, V, N, or you know, S90V kind of blades. Um, so yeah, you do that. Then you can do the back. Uh, the back's pretty self explanatory. The only tip I'll say there is like the further you pull that up, the easier it is. Yeah. So if you're solo, what you can do, and what I did the other time is you get like a little paracord or a string mm -hmm. and you kind of tie it to something uphill or to the side and you lift that string up, tie it off. Yeah. Sorry, not lift that string up, lift that quarter up, tie it off. Mm -hmm. You know, go back, cut a little more, it'll come loose, lift it up, tie it off, right? Right. If you're just holding that the entire time, <laughs> it can be pretty tough. Oh, I bet. Yeah. If you are in a situation where you do need to hold it, get down on your knees and stick it over your shoulder. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and then you know, cut it from that. So that one, you do have to go through the ball joint, but pretty easy. You just cut down to the ball joint and then you know, cut the little 10 in the middle and it pops out. Yeah. Uh, my tip on that is like, make sure to cut back down after you go through the ball joint. Mm -hmm. It's pretty easy to leave a lot of meat up on the kind of the top of its butt. Okay. And that's like some of the best meat you got. So uh, don't okay. want to waste that. Mm -hmm. Then you're doing the back strap, going front to back pretty easy takes more time than the others but not too difficult and then the tenderloin so that's the that's the big thing guys get interested in about the uh, the gutless method and instead of trying to walk guys through that i'd say watch the videos for that one but you can go in right behind the ribs and grab it and honestly you can almost pull it out with your hands sometimes you don't even need to cut it 
Yeah, I've seen it on a deer and I was surprised at how like kind of unattached it is that muscle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's generally not, you know, you try to run your fingers as far up there as you can. And those, those tenderloins, like you can take them to the butcher if you do butcher, but you can also eat those super fresh because they're so, nice. they're so tender. Uh, that's the best oh, part man. of the entire elk. So don't leave those. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's pretty much it. I mean, you've got and those you four pieces over. off and flip it over. I mean, the neck meat, definitely get as much of that as you can. Um, that's you that good in stuff. The bone? What's that? Do you keep the neck meat in the bone? Like how do you separate the neck or like the head? You just kind of fillet it off there like a fish. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty easy. So you can get that. And then all you got to do is flip the skin back over that side of the elk and flip it over. And if you're solo, you're going to have to kind of move the legs, then flip one part of the elk, then move the other legs and flip, but you'll be able to do it. Yeah. You've been working out, right? <laughs> Trying to. <laughs> um, okay. And then this is actually the most important piece of advice I can give you here is make sure your game bags are not like the boned out meat game bags. Yes. Oh man, I learned this one the hard way. So the first time I went elk hunting, I bought that really nice bomb meat uh, meat bags pack from Tag Bags. Mm-hmm. They were the original guys that did the the nylon game bags, I believe. And since then, there's like four or five others that have copied them. So you can you can go get those. But uh, if it's sized for boning out, you can't fit a quarter in there. Mm-hmm. And it's I, th- I think it's like eighteen by thirty four or something like that. It's a quarter is not going to fit in that. Yeah, so a bunch of it would just stick out. No, you just can't even get it in the bag. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, it would suck. It does suck because that means you have to bone it out. Yeah, um, which takes it, forever, right? Forever. And so I'm actually a huge proponent of not boning out unless you really, really, really need to. Um, and a bunch of reasons. The first is that it's – so bacteria gets into meat through the surface, Right. It can't really get down to the outside. This is why you can cook steaks medium or rare, but you can't cook burgers rare because you ground all the surface into the burger, right? Because that's all the bacteria. That's why it's really risky to cook a, undercook a burger. So if you're boning out the meat, you're adding a massive amount of surface area to that meat. Yeah. So almost no butcher is going to let you age that meat once you bring it to them, which aging it is going to do a lot to help break it down and make it tender. So... I've done both ways and the elk I've boned out usually tastes a little worse than the ones where it's bone in. So yeah. uh, the only exception to that is if it's stinking hot, it's like 80, 90 degrees. Like you might need to do that just to, just to cool it down. Oh, okay. But um, the second reason for that is it gets so bloody and messy, mm-hmm. right? If you have only cut off the portion that attached the animal, you only have one little area for the blood to get out. But if you bone out the meat and take it off the bones, it has pretty much an infinite amount of surface area to get yeah. out of there. Yeah, and totally. That leads to super messy, sticky, grimy game bags. It's just, a, it's nasty, right? Yeah. I'm actually looking at the game bags. They arrived in the mail. I finally got some. I got the Argali. Nice. Yeah. Uh, MOB meat on bone, large game MOB packs. Yeah. I don't think I walked you through this a week or two, but we got to redo it for the podcast, right? Yeah. It's <laughs> super light. It's way lighter than I expected. Yeah. 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 They're, uh, a lot of those are either ni- like pure nylon, mm-hmm. like ultra fine nylon was basically the, the thing the tag ones were doing and they've all kind of come out with that. And that's, there's kind of different tiers of game bags. You're going to get ones that are cotton cloth, which are, you don't want um, those get nasty and they, they don't last forever. They're super stinking heavy in volume. Then you're going to get ones that are kind of a polyester blend, maybe some nylon. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't, I don't want to call out names unless I'm hundred percent sure, but I think some of the budget bags, um, caribou, I think I've got a caribou one that weighs a little bit more like a mm-hmm. quarter for one of those is going to be like eight or 10 ounces. Yeah. And then you're going to get what, what I recommended to you, which are the pure nylon ones, uh, mm-hmm. tag or golly. Uh, there's two or three others. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, and those are going to weigh about four ounces for a bone in quarter. Right. Yeah, so you're all like a pound light. all in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's dead weight. And like you asked me, like game bags last forever, right? You can wash them, bleach them, do whatever you need to do. So it's like buy, buy once, cry once on that one. Cause that extra half pound you're toting around, is just worthless. Yeah. Um, and you're, if you replace it the next year, you just have to throw them away or not use them. So that's kind of stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So bloody, it's nasty. What else stinks about boning out? Oh yeah, it takes forever. Have, takes forever. Takes an hour or two if you're solo. Um, it doesn't provide structure for your pack, and we'll talk about packing and my tips there in a second. But it's just kind of this like blubbery, blobbly mass, right? It's just pure meat. Yeah, like you know, a like, sack with all the, with the bottom. <laughs> yeah, and so it just sinks into the bottom, and that's the worst place in your backpack for weight is down low. Yeah, because it's it, yeah all the pressure on your shoulders, then right? Exactly. So it's really hard to like structure it well you can but it's just a lot more effort yeah so anyway now that i've not i've said that i will and i have boned it out if i'm like solo and i'm five miles in and i've got a hell of a pack ahead of me yeah, yeah. but if you're gonna do that wait like pull the quarters off um cover them in the game bag or do whatever and then let them fully cool if you can before you bone it out okay because at that point the blood it's like the crime if you cut a steak immediately after it comes off a grill right Right. You know, it just sprays stuff everywhere. It's the same way about cutting the cutting meat right after it comes off an animal. If you let it cool down, then it's going to have far less leakage. Yeah. And then I guess the hotter it is out, then is that another reason you would bone it out? Like the, the hotter it is, the more likely you would bone it out? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Much more likely. And, you know, that's that's your next step. You're, I love this because you're like, your intuition's always taken over. You're like, oh, what's this? What's that? And you haven't even read the article. So I know you're just like, yeah. <laughs> you're picking up on it. Um, I'm just trying to think if there's other things that I need to talk about before we leave this. Oh yeah. Um, the antlers, right? So there's two or three, there's, I'm not going to try to put numbers on it. There's a lot of ways to, to get the antlers. I generally skull plate them because mm-hmm. um, I like to just put it in a Euro mount. Uh, yeah. You could bleach the skull too. That's kind of nice. Um, but if you're going to skull plate them, just leave the saw in the car and get it on the second trip. Oh, okay. So, so to bring the head back, you do need a saw? Or- uh, if you were skull plating it, yes. If you're just detaching the head, no. So okay. if you're going to detach the head, you kind of go into the, I think it's the C4, C, whatever it is. It's the big one right behind the, uh, right behind the skull. Yeah. And you just work it, the knife in between the vertebrae and just pop it out and kind of put forward okay. pressure on it. Yeah. Um, I think What's the skull plating? skull plating is where you cut a plate out of the skull. Like you start behind the antlers and then cut literally into the brain and then up around it. Yeah. So you only have the piece of skull that the antlers are attached to. Oh, okay. So you don't have like the bottom jaw, like jaw, yeah. lower jaw. Yeah. yeah. And if you take the, uh, the head too, you're probably going to want to cut off the jaw. So I think I've got a link to a great video by Corey. He's got this method. I've got another good one from Randy. He has a one on the back of that where he takes the head off. Mm-hmm. And then there's a great how to bone it out by the born and raised outdoors guys. Okay. Basically cool. cherry pick the, the best videos of each different thing. 
Nice. I was like, okay, this is it. Uh, so you can go check those out. But yeah, you can. You kind of have to make that decision beforehand because you'll need a saw if you're going to skull plate it. Right. Um, but I would just say leave the antlers. It's also, um, yeah, I don't know. I hesitate to even bring this up, but it's like kind of an ethical thing too. If your first loadout is antlers, like what are your priorities? <laughs> That's right? pretty funny. I never thought about that. Like I've, I've met hunters and the hunters that come out with the antlers first are usually not the guys I'm excited to hang with. Um, <laughs> like the meat is what goes bad. Antlers don't go bad, man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I understand it. You don't want to lose them. You don't want, but like that just doesn't happen if it's, you know, you're fine. Yeah. Uh, so you can do that, but okay. So now back to your great intuition, which is like, I got to get this cold. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll actually, we should talk kill kit here in a second too, man. So much in this podcast. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, this, but is yeah a dense one. this is a real dense one. Getting, getting it cold. So this is pretty easy. Act like an elk, right? They like, like North facing slopes in the shade. Right. And it doesn't have to be North facing as we talked about anywhere in the shade is where you really want to get that meat. Okay. And so that means you might have to go backwards away from the car, which is going to blow your mind, but you've got to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, just shuttle all the meat to somewhere that it's going to be in the sun the entire day. Yeah. And I have a question about shuttling and kind of like dealing with it all. Yeah. If you have the, the let's say one of the quarters in a game bag and you're going to pack it and like, or like shuttle it over, is it bad to set that game bag on the ground and lean against a tree? Like will it rip or anything? No, no, the, the, especially the nylon ones are really tough. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. They'll be pretty, I mean, I wouldn't drag it along the ground. Yeah. That's going to rip it probably. But I've, uh, the biggest rip I've ever put in one was like an eighth of an inch. And that was cause I oh, dropped okay. it onto a sharp, like pull it up and it hit a sharp broken off branch. Yeah. They're very, they're very tough. How the hell do you tie it up in a tree when that thing might weigh a hundred pounds? I actually don't really ever tie them up in trees to be honest. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh. Cause I'm not in grizzly territory. Yeah. And uh yeah, you could do that to get away from wolves and black bears, but I've never really had a problem. Um I actually I tend to put it around my tent at night. Mm-hmm. Just because I don't if something is messing with it, I want to hear it. And I'm not that worried about those predators. I mean I also yeah. carry a handgun, I'm not that worried. So uh but the number one thing you want to do is get it away. I've said number one a lot, but get it away from the carcass because the the predators actually like the guts the most of anything on an elk. I found a lot of wolf killed elk that they just eat all the guts, maybe a one rear quarter and they're out of there. Dang. That's just really, really frustrating to find. Um, Mm. But that's what elks do or what elks do, what wolves do. They just kill things for fun sometimes. Um, So you just get it away from the carcass. The carcass is going to smell the most. They're going to love it. Um, I'll just put it on branches you know, just let stuff that's deadfall, get it up yeah. off the ground. So it's cool. Uh, and you're generally pretty good there. Pee around it, put a sweaty shirt on it, any sort of human scent like that. Oh. And it's in a game bag. They really don't like that. Oh, interesting. Okay. So pee around it. Huh? Never heard that one. Yeah. I've been back to kill sites where I've done that and the, there are wolf tracks all around it and they've chewed on the carcass and they don't touch the, the meat. Wow. I mean, if you're, if you really, really want to, and you know, it's going to take you multiple days then you can hang it. Yeah. Um, but uh, like you said, that's going to be really hard. For solo, <laughs> you have to basically hoist pull at the same time. Right, right, right. You can't just pull. It's going to break the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it takes a bit of effort. But yeah, I just kind of leave it on the, the branches. And then I'll transfer it around my tent. Or I'll put my tent up right next to it okay. at night. Uh, but yeah, the key is just to get it cold. Because even if it's 60, 70 degrees out at night, like at mm-hmm. night, it's going to be 25, 30 degrees in the high country. Yeah. 
it's going to be stinking cold. And the, the thing that worked against you to cool it down is going to work for you because it's going to get stone cold at the core of that piece of meat over the course of the night. And it's going to be almost impossible for it to warm up past like 50 degrees, 40 degrees, which is like a refrigerator. Yeah, especially the, it's in the shade. In the shade in the middle of the day. So you got to, mm-hmm. the number one thing is it's just got to be in the shade all day long. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's it. I mean, generally it's pretty easy to do that and just kind of move it over to where you're going to go and you're, you're good to go. And then do you do the leapfrog method? Is that what they call that to pack it out? There's a lot of different ones. I generally just take whole trips. Yeah. Um, for me, it's about like, what's the timing If it's evening. I'm going to bed that night. Yeah. I'm going to wake up super early in the morning when it's cold and get it out, get a load out and finding another, another important one guys underrated is like finding a good spot back at your truck. There's no, if you were to have coolers big enough to, to leave bone in meat in, you're going to have two monstrous coolers. So almost nobody has a cooler that big and I don't want to refresh ice every few days. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't usually have somewhere that's got cold in it, but finding a good, really dense uh, group of trees right next to your camper or your, uh, your truck. Uh, there's usually at most trailheads in these areas, there's, you can tell there's places guys have done this for years. Okay. But you got to find a really good spot there because you're going to you know, shuttle it one or two times. Yeah. And most guys are pretty respectful. Like, you're not going to take your meat or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That would be like a killable offense in the uh, backcountry there. <laughs> but yeah, you don't, you hear about it every now and then, but most guys are not going to do that. That's, yeah. And just, you can get it far enough off the trailhead that no one's going to find it unless it's, okay. you know. And remember, like whatever state you're in, we're trying not to give that away, but different states require different things. Um, I think Colorado, this one I'm not 100% sure on, so guys need to check it. Uh, Colorado, you put it on the antlers, and I think in Idaho, you put it on the meat. Oh, the, the tag. tag. Yes. So you've got to gotta think that through as well. Okay. And you can call them, and they're like, should you have it in the first load or the second load? There's some little details. Okay. I mean, hopefully... That, uh, that officer is not having a bad day. It's pretty rare, but I've heard of people getting really stupid tickets like that. Oh man. Yeah. That's awesome. Not, yeah. not cool. How, uh, long, how many days can the meat stay out there? Like how many trips would you say is too many? And then like, when would you recommend someone to just get a pack instead? Yeah. And that's a hard one, especially if you're solo. I mean, I think two or three nights is fine. If it's, okay. if you've really taken good care of it like that, you'll be totally okay. But you know, if it's, 89, 80, 90 during the day, like you're September one and it's stinking hot and you don't have a great shaded spot. Yeah. You probably don't want to push it more than a night or two. So maybe at that point, just call a packer, call a packer or just, just go hard. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's pretty, if you're doing what we were talking about through this whole series, we are only three to five miles from your truck max. Um, yeah. You might have 16 hours of work ahead of you, but you can just pull a crazy day. Yeah. Okay. Get it out. Cause you're, you as a solo guy, it's probably four trips, maybe mm-hmm. three if you're willing to go hard. But uh, yeah, it's going to take a while to get started. Yeah, for out. me, I think it's going to take a little while because I, I only weigh 145. So there's no <laughs> way I can carry 100 pounds on my back. Yeah. Yeah. If you're about to shoot a giant six point or a raghorn, I'd recommend the raghorn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or just, you know, or give me a call. That would be, you're going to need some help. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, it just depends. And the guys will leapfrog it too, like you said, but I find that's more difficult because then you have to find two really good spots and then you're like, you're 
the amount of time to take it off and put it on your pack is a lot of time. Mm-hmm. I find it's best just to load it up at the kill site, get it all the way to just where you want to go, dump it. Yeah. And then that way too, on? you can kind of time it with your overnights. You know, you can do two trips, trip out, get it out, do another trip out, get it out, and then go in for the next night, sleep over and get the last load out. You know what I mean? Yeah. You yeah. kind of stagger it. I was going to say for me, for me going in solo, would you recommend me figure out a packing a packer or like contact packer beforehand? Oh yeah. No, I think it's uh, I think everyone should, even if you don't think you're going to use one, you should have a packer sussed out and a number ready because say I like injure my ankle coming out mm-hmm. like packing, yeah. which is pretty easy to do when you're packing heavy loads or you do something weird and mm-hmm. you, you know, now you really don't want to go spend the time to try to find a packer because they almost never are easy to get a hold of. Yeah. During that period of time because they're shuttling lots of clients. So you want to have them have someone on dial beforehand and they'll tell you things like, oh, text me and leave it there, or you know, I'm available between 3 30 a.m. and 4 30 a.m. Right. They'll they'll tell yeah. you the deal. Okay. So I'd always kind of have that lined up ready to go. Cool. Yeah. But uh maybe we do packing tips and then I think we're good. But man, this has been a this is a solid one. Uh so back to what we were talking about a second ago, and I think you get this because you backpacked a bunch, but you really want that weight to be as close to your back as possible mm-hmm. and as high up as possible, right? Like yeah, close and high, okay. Yeah, like between your shoulder blades, the best plate for heavy weight in any backpack is between your shoulder blades as close as possible to your back. Yeah. So obviously you can't put an entire quarter in a two-inch square area, So, but it's just trying to get the heaviest part of it there. So for example, one of my tricks is flip the rear quarter because you know, quarters are like a teardrop right um, and this is why i like to leave the bone in because it's kind of got that teardrop shape flip it upside down so that the narrow part is pointing down and the bottom of that bone hits the bottom of the meat shelf or the you know whatever it is in your pack and the thickest part of that quarter is up at the top oh yeah that makes sense yeah, and that's that bone is actually giving you the structure to do that versus without that structure, it can be pretty hard to jam the majority of that meat up there on your back. Yeah. Uh, so that's one little tip I'll do. So you're just trying to load it in a way that's going to go well. And sometimes you got such a big load, it's just like <laughs> you're just strapping it all on. <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. Um, and I think you picked up another pack but every, I'm not going to get into each one, but basically every pack system has a very different way of like detaching and allowing you to slide the meat in between the pack and the frame. Mm-hmm. And they're generally pretty complicated, even if it's a well thought out system. So my advice for you is like, after this, go test that out. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't even know how to do it. All exactly. Like, I'm always, always amazed by the amount of guys I talk to and they're like, yeah, I was in the back country and I was like trying to figure out how to get the thing in the pack and the meat. And like, yeah, that could be like a 10 minute, 15 minute ordeal that's stressing yeah. you out. And even worse, you do it wrong and then you bust a buckle. Oh, oh man, you're screwed. You're done then, right? Yeah. I mean, bust you're not the wrong buckle. You if know? it's the wrong buckle, you're totally done. <laughs> if you're, you're tying it onto your frame with paracord or something or, yeah worst of all stuffing it in the backpack and then it's just kind of like pulling you down and back yeah you don't want to do that yeah so i would uh yeah i would just test that out first yeah any other tips for packing out and like hiking out with all that weight on your back yeah so that's like we talked about the ankle thing it's pretty easy to hurt yourself packing out yeah like it's it's stinking heavy and i i guess for you my my tip and this probably applies to most guys too is like don't overdo it 
Yeah. I'd rather take more trips than try to just crush it. Everyone that's elk hunted that I've talked to always does the same thing. Like the second or third load or the second or third elk, they're like, screw this. I'm taking out two or three loads. I'm going to take 130 pounds or something. Uh-huh. And, uh, oh man, you do that once. Um, it's really, really easy to get hurt, mm. right? Like you can, with that amount of, it'd be like you walking when you're deadlifting or something, right? It's just so much force on your body. So yeah, yeah just I'm go smaller. For that part. Like that, but like, what if I can't even carry a hundred pounds on my back then, then would you carry say 70? Don't, um, for example, like that rear leg, like if that, yeah. one piece is just too heavy would you recommend like like oh uh, when you when you get it off you get the hide off of it you cut off the top part of the leg you yeah yeah it's i doubt it would be more than 60 70 pounds even okay. on the biggest okay. elk you know okay okay that's not too bad yeah so it's you, yeah. it's doable yeah you can you can do it but yeah you just take you my other advice is like take small steps you put this is the same thing in running. They've done a lot of a lot of research into step cadence, and it's a lot less abusive to your body to take small steps. Same here. Um, the biggest thing is you just don't want to ever gain momentum because if you build momentum with that pack, your your body's just not really capable of stopping it. Oh, I see. Yeah, especially if you're going downhill, huh? Yes. Oh, yeah. That's where it's super super dangerous. We actually talked about this before the podcast started because you're like, I did a weighted pack, heavy weighted mm-hmm. pack, and it kind of hurt me, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm. I'm like very much in the camp of like weighted packing is your knees and your ankles have a finite amount of life, right? Yeah. Like, like we're talking about this, all my buddies from high school that are in the Navy SEALs and guys I know there, they all come out of that in their thirties with almost no cartilage in their knees is because they all been doing 80 pound packs for five, 10 years. So uh, it's so, so rough on your body. So actually I'm not a big fan of weighted packing unless it's about the weight you'd be carrying, you know, 20, 30, 40 pounds. Mm-hmm. sparingly um but yeah if you do start going down <laughs> i've done this so many times but if you do start falling or you're going downhill and your knees just starting to give out don't try to catch it like whatever you do don't try to stop it with your leg don't put your wrist out to stop it just fall and as yeah. you fall like turn turtle right like yeah so like heavy and, yeah yeah. That's your back because meat, whatever you're tenderizing it. <laughs> and, uh, oh man, I wish Margaret was on the podcast now. Cause she's had so many great laughs where I start going down and I like just fall and like I'm in heavy grass or deadfall. And it's like, I'm a wrecking ball. I'm just plowing downhill, bl- blasting through things. Wow. Um, and it's fine. You know, the meat takes the majority of the brunt of it and you're okay. But mm-hmm. man, I'd shudder to think of what that would do to your leg or your wrist. If you tried to use that to stop it yeah gosh that would yeah. be so painful okay so you just you're just kind of like all right i'm letting this happen <laughs> just fall on yeah. the back just fall on the back just let that happen and then so if you're getting up like the first time you get up or you get up after that all you do is you just like put the pack on sitting down and you kind of roll onto your uh like uh, what's that called like the cat cow you ever done those you're like on your hands and knees yes yes yeah you just kind of roll onto your hands and knees and, and then, then you kind of do like a lunge or stand up that way right instead of like just trying to grunt it off the floor because again that's like doing a deadlift on your lower back it's tough mm-hmm. so it's pretty easy to get up that way not hurt yourself yeah um, i'm i'm not trying to scare you here like it's not as bad as you think and you'll be pretty amazed once you get up and you get all set up you'll be like wow i can just take small steps and it's not that big of a deal because mm-hmm. if you don't take when you take large lunges or steps and that sort of thing yeah, it's like deadlifting. You're literally standing up with it. But if you take tiny steps, your body doesn't ever go down or up 
And yeah, downer, kind of downer up is what's the hard part, right? Yeah, yeah. So you're kind of just shuffling it out. Just shuffling it out. <laughs> yeah. So Gosh. no big deal, which is also yeah. why it's good to think about your route out of there. There's plenty of times it's closer to the car for me to go one route out, but I know it's steeper and I know there's more deadfall versus I can add another mile or a half mile to go around that and like keep a, you know, a much more delicate downhill angle and then a almost flat traverse out. And I'm going to take the, the ladder every day of the week. Yeah. Yeah. It's well worth it. Gotcha. Um, would you recommend but, trekking poles or like hiking poles to save your knees a little bit? You know, I'm not a huge fan of those, but like, then again, every guy I've talked to that's older in all these sports, not even elk cutting is like, yeah, you, you'll be 40 and you'll want trekking poles. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of ultra runners will use those trekking poles. Yeah. You, you have to think they're basically 40, right? The amount of abuse they're putting sure. on their body. Like after 10, 20 miles of running, you, you are 40. You're adding yeah. a decade to your life every 10 miles. Um, so yeah, they, they definitely take a load off your feet and they're helpful, but they're heavy. I mean, you're going to add like, if it's one that's not going to snap under a lot of load, you're going to add, you know, pound and a half, two pounds mm-hmm. for a good set. Don't quote me on that. It could be a little lighter, but it's not light. And if you're yeah. doing that, then maybe you should have that as the poles for your 10. And yeah, it's just a different strategy, right? Right. Um, but they do help. You could leave a set in the car and come back. Leave a set of ski poles in the car for crying out loud. Oh yeah, that's, that's a good idea. Yeah, so you can do that. Um, yeah. Fitting the pack, we'll have to get someone in here who's a, um, an expert on that. And I think we've got someone in mind. But my quick tip on that is like the meat load's going to sag. Mm-hmm. You're extra, extra heavy. So that inch of or two inches of distance between the shoulder pads and the top of your shoulders mm-hmm. uh, that you had already is going to disappear when you put that pack on. Okay. So before you put it on, if you have an adjustable pack, I'd add another inch, maybe two to your straps if possible, like to move okay. them up because with the extra uh, weight of that load, it's going to compress. And the last thing on earth you want is all that weight sitting on your shoulders. Yeah. Um, although one thing I've noticed when you're hiking out, like you can put all the weight on your waist, you can take it off your waist to put it on your shoulders for like 10 minutes. You can kind of like halfway adjust it. I find it's best just to like play with it the whole time. Cause it like okay. just puts keep pressure tweaking. in different areas. And for me personally, that's the best way it works. Okay, so you just keep tweaking it, tweaking it, taking your time and rest a lot and take it slow and shuffle your way out of there. Yeah, and you'll find, uh, you'll learn that when you're packing, the best, you can tell I've done a lot of packing in New Zealand and stuff too. Um, the best possible thing you can find is like two logs next to each other. One that's the height of your butt and one's the height of the bottom of the pack next to yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, because then you don't have to take the pack off it's really hard to take it off and put it back on when it's that heavy and yeah. you can just sit down and it takes oh, all the yeah. weight. <laughs> right, <laughs> so, right. <laughs> so that's how I do breaks in the back country. I just hike until I find the next one of those or a yeah, rock yeah. that's got that. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah. So you just sit kind of just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I totally, I've totally done that before. Yeah. Yeah. It's you do that even with like normal backpacks. You're right, backpacking. right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. Last piece of advice. You're probably like, holy crud, man, to this point in time. <laughs> But uh, like, definitely find the butcher before you go, because mm. you get all this stuff in a car, and the the car is one of the most vulnerable parts, right? You come out, you've got it pretty cold, then you go drive down out of the mountains, and in September, almost anything out of the mountains is like eighty, ninety degrees, seventy, eighty, ninety degrees, right? Yeah. So you've got this elk in the back of a, a car heating up. And yeah. if you get out and you're now like calling around and Googling and trying to find a butcher, you're letting it sit there in the sun for like an hour, right? That's not yeah, good. Yeah, so bad. So 
definitely have the butcher lined up. You know, even if you're going to butcher yourself, like, or the meat locker, you know, whatever it is, just so you know how to get it there quick. Yeah. And then that's, that's right there is probably one of the most underrated best parts of elk hunting is when you drop it off at the butcher and the meat locker, then you're like, yes, like I am done, done. You know, like I, I not only got this elk, but it's safe. The meat's good. Everything's great. Um, yeah, so really you drop cool it all off at the butcher. Yeah. And you go get a burger and a beer or two and a not a long sleep. Long, long sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when, just when you thought we were done with the butcher too, like you can, a lot of guys panic because they're like, oh, well, I'm driving home in two days. You can usually pay them to do a rush job. Okay. An extra 100, 200 bucks, they'll do it in 24 hours. Uh, the downside of that is they might not be able to do some sausage and stuff. Yeah. We talked a bit about this on the dry versus fly episode, but mm-hmm. it's not the world's worst thing to leave it there for say, Hey, you got two or three weeks, just do a good job of it. And I want this, that, and that. Uh, and then just fly back, buy a one-way flight and get a rental. It's not as expensive as you and think. Just drive it out. Yeah. Drive it out. Yeah. Um, yeah I ended up renting the car for uh, a whole month or actually like five weeks. So awesome. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll, you'll have plenty of time. Yeah. drive that sucker home so yeah that's good and then also you'll have a lot of decisions around what to have it made and what to do and i would always ask the butcher one of the biggest pitfalls butchering your first elk especially is to ask them a lot of guys have been butchering from years and don't even know this but generally butchers can do do like a lifo method you ever heard of the accounting terms fifo and lifo no have not first in last out or last out first in uh, yeah um, so they'll with sausage and a lot of these things, it takes them days to do it. And they have to clean and set up the tooling every time. So they'll actually mix elk meat from everyone's elk together. Mm-hmm. They'll make the sausage and then they'll give it back to you. And I really don't like that. The amount of time and effort I put into making sure my elk is like totally pristine. Right. And I might've selected to shoot a raghorn instead of something slightly bigger. Like I want it to taste good. And so I would always like, when you're interviewing your butcher, if you're doing one, Ask them, hey, do you keep it separate? Yeah. The place I'm using now, um, they put a tag on every piece of meat. They have it all in one batch. And how you know that typically too is they'll say it's like a 10 or 20 pound minimum for each type of sausage because they don't want to set up the tooling without doing that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so good tip there. Uh, How much would you budget typically? Like what's a range that you would set aside for the butcher? uh, If you're going to do it up with a lot of sausage and some other stuff, it's probably going to be 300-ish. Okay. That's not too bad. It's not horrific. I mean, it's compared to doing it yourself, right? That's $300, but, uh, your good ones too, will put it in uh vacuum sealed bag. Yeah. Still, I mean, they'll just do a phenomenal job of it. So I'm willing yeah. to drive two or three extra hours to go find a good butcher because you'll need that you for the to, next year or two. You have to buy a couple big coolers to drive it back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's really, really easy to drive stuff back. Uh, you just let them process it out. And that's going to drop a ton of the volume. Uh, if it's a smaller mid-sized elk and you don't have them add a lot of beet, uh, a lot of meat to it, sometimes they'll want to add, uh, you know, pig or cow fat to the elk. And they'll give you that option. Um, that's another reason I love my butcher. It's a pure organic butcher, so they'll have organic cow nice. uh, fat to mix in with it. Uh, if they don't add a ton to it, it's usually going to fit in like a 150 quart cooler, which is okay. like x or y and i don't i don't want to forever kill myself here because i know a lot of cooler companies are gonna be pissed but a coleman extreme cooler at walmart mm-hmm. is gonna hold ice five days and every other cooler i've ever tested is only gonna hold it like six days 
Okay. So not only that's that cooler 60 bucks, but it's like 20 pounds lighter than all these really, really intense coolers. Oh, nice. What's you it called can, again? Coleman Extreme. Yeah. Right? Just any sort. Yeah. Coleman Extreme five day. Okay. Um, just don't even buy a cooler before you go. Oh, okay. Like if you should go, to Walmart. go to Walmart or go to somewhere nearby and buy one of those things, any sort nice. of big box store is going to have one. Um, so then what you do is you get it, you throw it in your truck, you put dry ice in it and dry ice. The great thing about it is it takes almost no volume, but it keeps things rock solid. Yeah. And you just part of the cardboard between, right? Yep. And it will, it's usually like a day, day and a half, sometimes two days that it'll keep stuff rock solid. And if, Hey, if you're running out, Oh my gosh, it's day and a half. What do you do? Just put more dry ice in there. No big deal. Mm -hmm. So pretty easy to get home. Nice. Yeah. I probably should have broken that up into like three different things. (laughs) (laughs) One on tracking. One one on tracking. One on. Yeah. We're a little rushed this year. Just trying to fit it in. All good. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back to that later. Cause there's, I want to say like 10 other things, but I'm like, dude, you just need to shut up at this point. (laughs) (laughs) But it is a good picture. I did get a lot of my questions answered, especially like some some of the nitty gritty stuff is you don't really think about. And then you think about like every step you have to do along the way. And like, I'm glad we we covered it. Yeah. And you, I mean, you can figure it out, but some of this stuff is time sensitive, right? You don't want to be figuring it out as you got meat warming up or something else going on. Yeah. Oh, I did want to say one thing. I know you mentioned to me, I think the number one cause of death in the back country is actually from knife cuts yep. wounds. So like when you're butchering out there, just be super, super careful. Cause that's the yeah. biggest mistake, right? Thanks for giving me another five minutes. Let's <laughs> uh, yeah, that is, if you do, if you look at research for hunter deaths, the number one cause of those, at least a few of the sources I've seen is from knife injuries right? You're pushing on a piece of meat and it slips and it cuts you. A yeah. uh, sharp knife is a safe knife. I'm a huge fan of fixed blade knives. I really don't like the replaceables. I tried two or three, four types. Um, they're not horrific. I think the outdoor edge of all of them is one of the better ones because it's got a much larger blade. And it's the thing you got to worry about with replaceables is uh, how to remove and replace the blades. Some of them, it's like really dangerous and difficult to do. And if you slip while you're doing that, it's dangerous. Yeah. Versus the outdoor edge one, you can just press a button and it slips right out. Nice. Um, but the problem with those blades is they're such low quality that, yeah, even though you've got replaceable ones, you're going to go through three or four. It's like the yeah. weight you're carrying is a ton. So I literally carry a fixed blade and a tiny, tiny little ceramic rod that I pulled off a Leatherman bow tool, which I'm not a huge fan of, but hey, I got the ceramic rod. Mm-hmm. And I'll, you don't need to resharpen with a lot of the knives out there, but I will just for kicks and giggles. But sharp knife is a safe knife always cut away from yourself, right? The, the basics of nice stuff. Um, and I mean, a tourniquet, like a good medical grade tourniquet weighs like a pound. Yeah. So you don't bring one up. I highly doubt anyone's going to bring that because you need yeah. a, a tur- good tourniquet. Um, yeah. You just really need to be careful with that. Yeah. Think twice, Whoa. cut once. Yeah. <laughs> think twice, <laughs> cut once. That's a good piece of advice. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of cut twice, think once. <laughs> it's from like woodworking and stuff because you can't add wood back on, you know? Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, watch the knife stuff. That's, yeah. That's why I like smaller blades too. Uh, my, all the blades I'm using right now, I've got the Benchmade Altitude, mm-hmm. which is a great knife. Um, it's really great because it's not, a lot of these ultralight knives, they, they call them ultralight and then you have to go tie on a bunch of paracord and it's like, well, now it's two, two and a half ounces and like, hey, I can get handled knives for that weight. 
Mm-hmm. I like this Benchmade one because it's got really good balance, even at that like one ounce weight. One, you know, super super light. But the yeah. blade on it, where I was going with this, is the blade on it is short. It's like three inches. Mm-hmm. And I really like short blades because you basically just lay your finger over the top of that blade, and there's yeah. no way it's you always know exactly where it is. It's very intuitive. Right, like the tip of your finger is going to touch you. It's going to cut you, and that's it. So Got it. I'm a fan of that. Yeah, I lost my knife, so I got to buy a new one. But we, we can talk offline about that one. <laughs> this is why you can't have nice things, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where it went. I just keep, I keep it in my pocket all the time. But, you know, like, yeah, and if you like tips for guys, I think we talked about this on another one. But like, I I love fancy gear. I love nice gear. I love reviewing all this glitzy, amazing crap. But you can buy a scalpel handle, a fixed scalpel handle that's plastic on Amazon for a dollar and you can buy all the replaceable blade knives that are the exact or uh, blades that are the exact same ones you're going to buy with hunting knives for like mm-hmm. 20 for $3. Oh, wow. Like $5 you can have a knife set that you can use to you know do it in complete and yeah. just keep replacing the blades and just throw the whole thing away after like who cares. Yeah, so if you're yeah. <laughs> going to go the replaceable blade route, mm-hmm. there's some good great ones out there edge um, Taito, Havalon, you know, list goes Gerber, list goes on, right? But yeah. you can also just spend five dollars on Amazon. So you know, there's that. I'm not going to earn any nice sponsors this way. I got to shut up. Not that we're sponsored anyway. That's why we're independent. Exactly. <laughs> but, not uh, by choice. <laughs> yeah. No, I definitely. We've talked about why I want to do keep it that way for a while, but yeah. Uh, yeah, man. Cool. Well, I think that's one up for the, uh, the one listener who's still left. Yeah. Right. The one guy is like <laughs> just straggling on here. No, I mean, I think it's all valuable. I think it's all good yeah. stuff, but, uh, it's definitely a meaty one pun intended. Mm-hmm. Nice. It's a good one. Everything you need <laughs> cool. to get the meat out. All right. Well, I think we're summing it up next week. So we'll, uh, we'll be back with that, but thanks for hanging with us guys. And as always like comment, subscribe this is a great way to help us out. And then, uh, sign up for a newsletter. Cause that's where everything goes. Uh, whether it's YouTube, whether it's Instagram, whether it's here, whatever it is, it all goes there. And a lot of stuff that doesn't go out anywhere, like photos of the baby from a few weeks ago went to the newsletter, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's it. So thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week.